Well, before we begin our Torah study, I want to pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. This morning I want to talk to you about being a rebuilder, being someone who repairs, someone who is a partner with God in restoring this broken world. How many of you can verify that the world is broken? And it's not going to get better on its own, is it? And it seems every day there's something new that reveals the brokenness of this world. There are days when I think, okay, I've heard it all. And then the next day I'm surprised. There's something unbelievable that might uh, surprise us yet again that proves to us that the world itself is broken. Now those of us who follow Yeshua should not be in shock or surprised by this, but we should understand something. God has put in our hearts a yearning for a finished world, a fully redeemed world, a restored world that's fully renewed, But we know this, that will only be possible through the sovereign work of God at the end of the ages. What do we do in the meantime? Now we are called to not only yearn for that, but we're called to serve God's purposes to bring his blessing, his renewing, his restoration in any sphere, in any area of influence and opportunity that we have. There may be problems and challenges in the life of the people around you. You maybe have challenges too. God wants to use those broken situations as opportunities for him to minister through you, for you, by you. You're called to be a partner in one in Hebrew is called tikkun olam. Can you say that with me? Tikkun olam. It means to repair the world or to mend the world or even to complete and and, um, finish the world. Now some of us in the room like to work on broken things or old things or things that used to be in a wonderful condition but now aren't. Is, Is there anybody in the room who likes to rebuild cars? Can I see? Okay, all of you who are car rebuilders, stand up for just a minute. Do you like doing that? You do. I I was at Manuel's garage recently at his home and looking at uh, motorcycles he's rebuilding and renewing and actually synthesizing. He takes parts of this and parts of that and makes something altogether new. It's some of the skills that uh, Cubanos have, right? It's amazing skill. Now, how many have been involved in rebuilding houses? Can all of you stand up who have rebuilt houses? Now, last night I asked this question of the people who rebuild cars. Why do you do it? And they say, well, I like to do it. I asked the people about rebuilding houses. Almost nobody said, I do it because I just like to do it. Most of us do it because we have to do it. We get a house that needs work, that needs to be transformed. And some of us actually make a living at it. Some people have that as, as their special skills and their work is around that. How many people have ever lived in a fixer-upper? 
How many are hoping you can one day move to a fixer-upper <laughs> out of the situation you're in? <laughs> Some people like to, uh, to restore furniture, antiques. Anybody here ever restore, restored furniture? Let me see your hands. Just stand up. We, we're just taking moments. Look at these folks. Now you know who to ask for help from. <laughs> Some people like to restore dolls, like to repair uh, electronic things. Last night I was speaking about this, and, and Bill Gordon said, what about repairing software? Ooh, anybody involved in that besides Bill? Yeah, several of you. Yeah, one, two, three, yes. We may not think of that as renovation work, but it really is. Bill told me after the service last night, uh, software that's three years old is old, and it needs to be fixed, and needs to be rebuilt, and, and its capacity has to be changed based on the new things that have happened. Some people rebuild businesses or repair businesses. Some rebuild organizations and ministries, congregations. Some are involved in repairing and renovating and renewing people. In fact, all of us need renewal. All of us are called to participate in renewal. And every one of us has been a recipient of the mercy of God who works to renew us. You know, God made you unique. He, there's not another person like you. Each person has their unique set of strengths and their unique set of weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And God wants to harness our strengths and he wants to heal our weaknesses and renew us so that we don't fall into traps because of our weaknesses. Now, one of the themes of this week's portion in the Torah, I believe, is, is about repairing and renewing and how God works to repair and renew the brokenness in the world by repairing people who are broken. When we start to follow the Lord, we have a lot to learn. We have to learn about God. We have to learn about his ways. We have to learn about what he loves and what he hates. We have to learn about the life of faith. What, what is this new life that he's called us to? We have to learn about how to have a relationship with God. It's not just being a religious person, but having a living, intimate relationship according to the promise of the new covenant, that from the least of them to the greatest who receive the Spirit of God and who are renewed through the new covenant, they will know the Lord. And that means they will have intimacy with him. There is a difference between knowing about God and knowing about religious things and knowing the Lord. Just like there's a difference in knowing about baseball and being able to play baseball. How many in the room are professional baseball players? Can I see? Over here, great. How many watch baseball? Okay, how many are professional football players in the room? Dexter's not here right now. Uh, How many watch professional football? And how many who watch professional football have advice for coaches and players? (laughs) And there's a difference, you know? 
between being able to watch and enjoy to see versus to do. To know about something is not the same as being able to do that thing. I read something uh, about entrepreneurial education. It, it, it seems that entrepreneurial education is a major failure, that it hasn't produced more entrepreneurs. And there is a fundamental reason for it. Learning about entrepreneurial activity is not the same as doing it. And what's actually necessary is to learn by doing it, to be coached, to be mentored, and to have good resources. But you can go through a whole educational process and pass the tests academically and still not have the grit, the metal, the capacity, the thinking, the way of working, the way of organizing and relating to people that makes entrepreneurial activity successful. In the same way, learning about God can be useful, but it's not enough. We have to actually develop a relationship with him. We have to build that relationship. We have to learn about how God relates to us so that we can relate to other people. We have to learn about how God redeems, his ways of redeeming, his ways of reconciling and repairing and renewing. Now, this week's Torah portion is called Vayikra. Can you say that with me? Vayikra. When God called, and he called. And it's the beginning of the new book we're reading. Leviticus is how we call it in English. And it, it has a section which I want to focus on that's about sin. And it basically says this, when you sin. Not if you sin. When you sin. Now, if you're feeling comfortable with the person sitting next to you, tell, you, tell them, this is about me. This is about me and my sin. This is about how I can learn what to do when I sin. Not so I can learn how to sin. We all have that capacity. The theme is this. We all miss the mark. We all sin. We all fall short. And we're all aware of that everyone needs mercy. Everyone needs forgiveness. This passage, Vayikra, is interesting because it begins with this singular word, and he called, uh, he called out. It's different than if God said, it's a different way of expressing it when the scripture wants to communicate God said, or God spoke. To call out is something that you do when you are at a distance separated from the person who's hearing. Now, Eric's sitting next to his wife, Anya. He does not need to call out to her if he wants to tell her something. He can actually whisper in her ear like he's doing right now. Yeah. (laughs) And he could even mouth words and she could read his lips. Sometimes my wife will give me ideas, suggestions, direction. She'll mouth something. Other times she'll give me hand signals, you know, like, (laughs) cut it. There are a few moments, and I appreciate that. I need that help. She she gives it to me, but when I've gone off too far in something, she'll sometimes go like this, and sometimes I go, "Mm -mm." (laughs) I'm not finished. (laughs) But you can communicate in certain ways when you're really close but in different ways when there's a distance. And this, this book starts 
with God calling out. And that suggests that there's a distance, and it's really part of the theme of of this book, that everyone sins, and yet, even though that separates us from God, God's calling out to us to come close to him. And we're going to learn something about what to do when we discover sin in our lives so that we can participate with God on his terms. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 4. We're going to look at just the first two verses here. The Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel, if anyone sins inadvertently against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning, and then it goes on to describe that, if anyone sins, if anyone sins inadvertently. And then in chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, it extends it. It says, if the entire community of Israel inadvertently makes a mistake, falls short, sins, with the assembly, with the whole community being unaware of the matter, and they do something against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which should not be done, they are guilty. Say that with me. They are guilty. Even if it's inadvertent, they're guilty. When the sin they've committed becomes known, then the assembly is to offer And it describes then the sacrifices that are to be offered. So this is describing not an individual, but the whole community. You know, it's possible for everyone to be ignorant together. It's possible for everyone together to not have paid attention or not have learned something that needs to be learned about what's pleasing to the Lord. Then let's go to... Leviticus 4, verses 22 and 23. When a leader sins, let's say that, when a leader sins and inadvertently does something against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which should not be done, he's guilty. If the sin which he committed becomes known to him, he's to bring as his offering, and then it describes in detail what that is. And then we'll go to Leviticus chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. Incidentally, all these scriptures are posted online on Facebook right now. You can go to uh, the Beth Israel page, Beth Israel Messianic Synagogue on Facebook, and you can read all these scriptures. They've all been collected for you, so you don't have to turn to them right now, and you have them as a reference. They're also on the Messianic Jewish Teachings podcast page on Facebook, and even on my personal page. Leviticus 5, verses 2 through 5. When a person touches something unclean, whether the carcass of an unclean wild animal, a domestic animal, or a reptile, he's guilty, even though he may not be aware that he is unclean. If he touches some human uncleanness, no matter what the source of the uncleanness is, and is unaware of it, then when he learns of it, he's guilty. If someone allows to slip from his mouth, an oath to do evil or to do good, and he doesn't remember that he clearly spoke this oath, then no matter what it was about, when he learns of it, he's guilty. So how many can relate to that? You said something and then you wish you hadn't said it. Or you made a promise and you didn't fulfill it. You forgot about it. When you remember it, that's when you're guilty. What do you do? So this is describing the kinds of sins that each of us can identify with and recognize their, their sins, their, their mistakes, their failures, they, 
They are the kinds of things that we might say, I just didn't know, or I didn't understand at the time, or I didn't mean to, or it wasn't my intention. In fact, everyone who, who comes to the Lord will have a moment where they'll look back on their life with a new perspective and they'll see things that they did in the past that they now think differently about. And with regret, they'll say, well, that was sin. I didn't even know it was sin at the time. Or, wow, I did this thing. I didn't intend to sin, but it surely was. And we're taught here not to make excuses about such sins, but to still come to the Lord and and express our guilt to him. When we do this, you see, he's ready to receive us. Now, God is showing us this because he has a special attitude about us. He's not trying to judge us. He is trying to renew us. And this is part of his priestly ministry to us. Think about this. If God wanted to judge you and convict you, how many can verify that you're already guilty? And if God's only purpose was to convict you of your guilt, then he could just stop right there once he found you guilty and say, okay, you're guilty, that's it, see? But what does God show us through, through this instruction? He shows us that though we're already guilty, there comes a point where our heart and our mind awaken to our guilt, and that's when we recognize that we need atonement for our guilt. We need a sacrifice. Now, don't only think about the blood sacrifices of animals, but think about the blood sacrifice of Yeshua, because we're not offering animals anymore. And we're not hoping that a new temple will be built so that we can again have animal sacrifice. We have in Messiah Yeshua a sacrifice once for all, for all of the sins that we have committed and all the ones that we will commit that we truly repent of. That has been perfected in Messiah. We don't need a different sacrifice. We only need that sacrifice. Now I want you to think about what it's like to be guilty by thinking about when you're driving on the interstate and the highway patrol or police officer pulls up behind you with his lights on. How many of you have had that experience? Some of you don't have licenses, I know. (laughs) And have you had that experience where the lights come on, the officer's behind you, and, and you're thinking, oh no. And then he pulls to the left and he passes you. Isn't that a relief? (sighs) That's when you really want to thank the Lord for officers. But think also how you feel when they don't pull around you, but they pull you over. How many besides me have had that experience? And think about the feelings you're having when you're sitting in your car, they're in their car behind you, and they're running your plate, right? (laughs) 
You know, most people are not saying, man, I feel good today. (laughs) It's not a warm, fuzzy moment. It's more like, oh no. And then there's that terrible question that the officer asks when you roll down your window. Do you know why I stopped you? Some are nodding their heads. Maybe some of you just have terrible feelings about this, but I like to think about these moments. I'm not thinking about your moments, I'm thinking about my moments. (laughs) Do you know why I stopped you? And Oh yes, thank you so much. What a blessing you stopped me today. I, I need help so much and I didn't know what to do. You must be a godsend. No, that's not why I stopped you. Actually, Sandy and I did have that, a similar experience. Once we were driving around D.C. and it was like a can of worms and spaghetti on the roads. We couldn't figure out where we were. And it was, the, it was before GPS when we had paper maps. How many of you know what a paper map is? Okay, good. If you're sitting yet next to a youngster who doesn't know what a paper map is, explain to them about this one day. Maybe you can show them one. And so... This officer pulled us over because we were driving a bit erratically. And he came up and he said, I believe you need help. (laughs) And it was true. We did. And he saw that we had this map and we were like looking and turning it, you know, this way and turning it upside down. You're like, where are we? Trying to find ourselves on the map and then trying to figure out where do we turn, and then we kept missing a turn. You know, as soon as we could figure it out, it's like, there it is, it's gone past. We didn't know what to do, and he saw that. And he said, I think you need help. Are you lost? And we said, we are so lost. And then he said, where are you trying to go? We told him, and he said, follow me. Wasn't that great? And he took us in the right direction. It it was such a blessing. Now I'm thinking about another time, not on this recent trip, I didn't have this problem. But once we were driving in South Carolina uh, to see our daughter in Myrtle Beach, I'd just gotten a new car and it was a lot faster than the old Toyota I'd been driving. And we, we had been on the highway, you know, 70 mile an hour speed limit. We get off on this road that goes from four lanes to two lanes, and I guess I didn't really take seriously the speed limit sign that said 35. And so I was going faster, faster than that, about 40 miles faster than that. Yeah, that's that's so far beyond reckless driving, (laughs) technically. So wouldn't you know it, the, I got a warm welcome from a state trooper in South Carolina who pulled me over, and he came up and he said, do you know why I stopped you? And I said, I think I was going too fast. And he said, that's right, do you know how fast you were going? And I said, no, I'm afraid to know. How fast was I going? And he said, well, 20 miles an hour over the speed limit is reckless driving. You were going a lot more than that. So it it turns out that when the speed limit went from 55 at a point when I was going like 70-something with the traffic, 
And then it dropped down to 35. I had a delayed response to the 35. You know, I drove for miles. <laughs> and he said, you were going really fast. And I said, that is really fast. And so I told him the truth. I said, this car is just fast. It's smooth. It got away from me. I've only had it for two days. And, and you know, I'm sorry. And he said, I'm going to write you a warning. And as long as you're in the state of South Carolina, I want you to obey the speed limit. I said, yes, sir. So he wrote it up. I put it in my uh, glove box, and I started driving 35 on this two-lane road. Well, traffic accumulated behind me a mile or two miles because nobody, nobody believed in that speed limit. And when, it, when the road got back to four lanes and the speed limit got back to 55, everyone started passing me, and they all had the same reaction. They were cursing me. And they were like, you know, showing their fists or, you know, you're number one. (laughs) But I stuck to the speed limit at that moment. Because I understood I had the moment of failure and now I needed to really be faithful in driving the speed limit. Now, almost all of us know this, that when the police pull up behind you with their lights on and they want you to pull over, it's not a good idea to try to outrun them. Am I right? And I am not going to ask for a show of hands of people who (laughs) didn't exercise wisdom. But I I, want to say this. We know that about the police. But when it comes to the Lord, there are times when we don't use the same wisdom and he wants to pull us over and asks us this question, do you know why I stopped you? So that he can correct us and he can instruct us and he can renew us so that we can learn how to live in a way that's pleasing to him. But some of us just try to outrun him. It's like, oh, God's on my tail. And the fact is, sin does separate us. And there are times when we really are ashamed of ourselves and we feel disappointed in ourselves and we know we're guilty. And instead of coming to the Lord to deal with it, we try to, we try to outrun him. We try to avoid him. But the Lord wants not to convict us so that we're guilty. He wants to renew us. And that's why we read about this in in the Torah portion. What is the guilty person supposed to do? They're supposed to come to the Lord and say, I know it wasn't my intention, but I did sin. And, And I'm coming to you, Lord, and I need cleansing. I need healing. I need forgiveness. Every one of us experiences this in our lives. This is a universal experience I want you to understand this. This is not something that just a few go through. That's why the scripture is explicit when one person does it. And then when the whole community does it. And then when the leader does it. And then when, when even people who are going about their way involved in other things and have no idea what's happening with them when they do it. And later they discover. 
Every one of us should be able to relate to this because we all have these kinds of experiences. Isn't it true? Isn't it true that we can look at things in our lives and say, I wish I hadn't done that. I, I wish I could fix it. I wish, uh, I, I wish I could learn from this. And I want you to understand, you don't need animal sacrifice. You have the sacrifice of Yeshua. What do you do with your guilt? You have to bring it to the Lord and allow the blood of Messiah to cover that for you and to take away the sin. Now, we learn something through Yeshua, and that is that it's important for us to be honest with him about our sin. Some of us want the scriptures to say, if you deny your sin, he's faithful and just. If you avoid your sin, he'll cleanse you. No, the scripture says, if you confess your sin, then he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that is written for each one of us so that we can learn the ways of God. It's important to understand that God's not a bad guy upstairs. He's not the prison warden. He's not the judge who's just trying to find you guilty so that he can sentence you. He's trying to find a way to bring you out of guilt. This is the whole reason for Yeshua's atoning sacrifice, to make a way for everyone to come out of the guilt that they have. We may be embarrassed or disappointed in ourselves. What are we to do? We're to run to the Lord and to draw close to him and to remember Vayikra and he calls out. He calls out to us, why? Because he knows there's a distance between us and him and he wants us to come close. He wants us to be close with him. He wants us to recognize our sin and that's when we're thankful for the sacrifice of Yeshua. These are really common human problems. I didn't know, I didn't understand, I didn't realize, I didn't intend to. It wasn't what I meant. But it's an important detail. We're not trying to make excuses. We're trying to take responsibility. When, when we're making excuses, we say, well, I didn't mean to, so I'm not guilty. I didn't, it wasn't my intention, so I'm not guilty. But when we're being honest, we admit our sins and we don't try to shift the blame off of ourselves. We take responsibility. That's what God is wanting to teach us, that that's the way of restoration. When we do this, God makes a way to restore us. This is how he works. God wants to make a place in our hearts and our minds for his commandments so that when we discover that we haven't been living up to his ways, that we can be renewed in him. He writes his Torah on our hearts and on our minds so that we can be close to him. Do you see that? Do you see that God is not just trying to make you feel guilty? I, I like the old saying, the Jews invented guilt. The Catholics perfected it, but <laughs> the Jews invented it. Guilt is only one part what we do with our guilt is really important. And you can deal with it by just bearing psychological guilt. Some, some of us just internalize our guilt. We hold on to it. And rather than be cleansed, we, we feel like the, that the feelings of guilt are the punishment that we deserve. 
Well, I want you to understand something. The punishment that we deserve has been taken by Yeshua. It's not that you would feel psychological guilt, it's that you would know true guilt before God that doesn't leave you alienated from him and separated from him, but causes you to appreciate the sacrifice of Yeshua and to thus draw close to him. That's his goal. You see, God is not trying to raise up a kingdom of judges. He's trying to raise up a kingdom of priests, a priestly nation. And this new covenantal priesthood that God has invited all of us into is not meant to just find the guilt of the broken world around us, but it's meant to help restore and repair. You see, all of us are guilty, isn't it true? How many sinners in the room? Everyone needs forgiveness. And everyone who comes to Yeshua uh, Yeshua sincerely receives forgiveness. And once we receive forgiveness and we continue to receive it, you know what that means? We can relate to other people differently. We can also forgive them. Yeshua tells a terrible parable about someone who uh, received forgiveness and then couldn't or wouldn't forgive. And how that person was turned over to tormentors. And so we learn from the way Yeshua deals with us and the forgiveness we receive how to forgive other people. Now this passage is not for people who reject the sovereignty and the authority and the goodness of the Lord. It's not for people who totally reject God because those people are not going to say to God, I sinned. They're going to avoid it. So so. Understand, this is a passage for people who do want to be faithful to God and are living as faithful people. Now, this coming week we'll celebrate Purim, and Esther learned that God had a plan to fix the broken world that she was living in. Her her elevation as queen was all about serving God at a time of danger and darkness and threat. She wasn't called to hide from that. She wasn't called to deny it. She wasn't called to hyper-individualism. She was called to serve the Lord and to recognize that God puts us in positions where we can change the brokenness of this world that we're living in. That's not the same as healing the entire world once for all, which only God can do. But you and I have a call to bring healing and to bring repair and renovation in those places where God has put us. So whenever you're in a dark place or a broken place, don't curse that place. Don't curse the people. Understand this, God put you there because he wants your yearning for restoration and for healing to motivate you so that you can say, God, how do you want to use me? in this situation. We're called to bring the light of God and the love of God. We're called to renew and restore and renovate. We're, we're called to mend the world, to renew it, to kun alam. Yeshua's atoning sacrifice is so important for us. And his resurrection is verification of that. This coming week, the 
the Western Christian world will be celebrating the resurrection of Messiah. It's very important, it's a good time to remind people that the Messiah who rose from the dead is the Jewish Messiah. Not everybody knows that. You might have the privilege of meeting some anti-Semites in the week to come, and you can tell them good news. Guess what? The Messiah is Jewish. Watch their faces. But use it for good, not to chastise. As important as Yeshua's atoning sacrifice is, his ministry goes far beyond that. He rose from the dead, he returned to heaven, and he sent his Holy Spirit so that the Spirit of God in you could renew you. So that the Spirit of God in you could clean you up and give you power as servants of Messiah. Now think about how God put Esther in just the right place at just the right time in order to bring about his plan to preserve and renew the Jewish people. In the same way God saves you. And God calls you to be an agent of Messiah and to be an agent of resurrection life and renewal. So when you come across the guilty this coming week and then the months to come, when you come across the broken people, even the ones who, because of their brokenness, are not doing good to you. See how God can use you. There's someone you know who needs healing. Someone you know who needs encouragement. Maybe they don't deserve it, but they need it. Someone you know who needs compassion. Someone you know who needs forgiveness. And you can be a minister to them to encourage them to to do everything that's in their power to be right with God and an agent of the Lord rather than an enemy of God. Remember this, God puts you in special places that are designed for you, not for other people, to do good, to, to bring the good news to the brokenhearted, the oppressed, the the ones who are heavy laden. And God not only allows you to use your experience and your thoughts and your wisdom and your understanding, he allows you to pray for people. He allows you to ask him to do for others beyond what you could ever do for them. Some people will come to you with needs and you may feel pressure because of their needs. But I want to tell you what to do. Lift them up to the Lord. Pray for them and ask God, what do you want to do for them? And then you start praying in that direction. And I can tell you this, when you start praying according to the things God writes on your heart, he will do incredible things for other people. Some of those times, the other people won't even have faith. They won't even believe that God could do something. Don't worry about that. If God gives you faith for them, you pray and you trust him, and you believe God will work for that person and change them and change you in the whole process. Well, I want to encourage you, because this world is so broken, and you and I know it, don't get lost in the brokenness and don't fall into that, that easy religious role of being judges and critics of the broken world. Think about this as a closing thought. If God only wanted to save you in order to get you to eternal life in heaven, 
the moment you are saved, you could be translated, right? Out of this earth. It's like, okay, got another one, he's out, she's out, boom, boom. Why does God not work that way? It's because God wants to use you once you're saved through his mercy and grace. He wants to use you to impact the world around you. Not just to tell others, but to show others. Not just to lecture them, but to pray for them and minister to them. He wants to use you. And that's how I want to pray for you. I want to pray that as we're approaching Purim, you'll say to the Lord, it's for such a time as this that you've put me here in these situations. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you know the times and seasons that we're living in, the times and seasons of our own life. And we are so glad that you have given us life during this time. We do not lose heart, Lord. We're not wasting away because inwardly we're being renewed every day. Thank you, Lord, that you save us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. You save us not because of righteous things we've done, but because of your mercy. And we want to bring that mercy to this broken world. Use us, Lord, to heal and to mend this broken world and to bring glory to the name of Yeshua. In his name we pray. Amen. 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 We're going to close with Aaron's blessing. And we're, afterwards, we've got some challah we're going to pass around. I want to give a, a special welcome to any first-time visitors. Anyone here for the first time? Welcome. Glad to have you. So glad you could join us. Welcome. We're glad you could be with us. Join us for this awesome day. And if, if you want to stay in touch with us, you can fill out a visitor's card in the seat back in front of you or one of the welcome packets that we hand out. And we'll let you know about good things that are happening in the synagogue. Shalom. The Lord bless you and keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat shalom.